God willing, we will finish Isaiah tonight. Last week, we got about a third of the way through Isaiah 65. I think we finished it up through verse 12. And I want to pick it up at verse 11, and that'll sort of give us a run into it. Isaiah 65, 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So what we're talking about here, starting in verse 11, is those who have gone off into paganism and the idea of setting a table for fortune and filling cups for destiny. Fortune and destiny are, of course, expressions of randomness. And it was Leviticus 26 where God tells Israel that if they treat him, and the word in English standard is casually, which is to say you attribute the things that happen to you, not to your relationship with God, but to random chance, mother nature, anything like that, then I will really get upset. And so the idea here of setting a table for fortune and filling cups of mixed wine for destiny is the idea you're depending on luck, fortune, randomness, any of those kinds of things. And God, as I say, says in Leviticus, if you decide to do that, I would really get upset with you. Which should take you inexorably to evolution. Whenever you talk about evolution, the language gets shifty. What I am talking about when I say evolution is not changes within a species in response to the environment. That's unremarkable. And my favorite joke goes, you can start with a wolf and get to a chihuahua that way. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. So the idea is selective breeding and all that kind of stuff. You can get changes to an animal that will breed true. That is one form of evolution. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the idea that life came from rocks or random hydrogen or any of those kinds of things. So the idea that nothing plus time equals where we are is the idea that everything that we are is a product of random chance. And you need billions and billions of years to make that work because getting us from random chance is so unlikely as to be impossible. In fact, it didn't happen. So here in Isaiah, when God is saying he is grumpy with people who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, what he's talking about is people who think that the processes of the world are undirected and random and everything depends on luck, which is what the theory of evolution says. Therefore, you know that the theory of evolution is satanic. It is not only not right, but it is wrong in a spectacular way that is designed to destroy your faith in God. So the attractiveness of fortune is something that seems to be generic to human beings. In fact, the Great Wall of China was financed through Kino. That's how they financed the Great Wall of China, was gambling. 
and numbers running and that kind of stuff. But anyway, the idea of fortune replacing God is what's being talked about here, and our society is soaked in that kind of way of thinking. So verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. So what we're going to have is a series of contrasts between these people who have set a table for fortune and mixed wine for destiny. We're going to contrast those people with the servants of God. And there's going to be a number of these couplets, if you will. So, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart. And you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. So in Proverbs, it talks about the righteous and the wicked. And when the wicked die, they don't leave a name behind. They just sort of evaporate. And there's a brief period of rejoicing when they die, but their names are gone. Whereas the righteous have a name that will last. So this would echo back to Proverbs, and it was written after Proverbs. So you shall leave your name to my chosen, those who will survive, and your name will be a curse. Anybody ever heard of Hitler? His name has become a curse. You know, when you're really grumpy with somebody, you call him a Hitler. 15 again. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants, the servant of God, he will call by another name. That should, of course, take you to Revelation. What happens in Revelation? He gives everyone a white stone upon which a new name is written. And it's a name that is known only to the receiver and to God. And, of course, white stone implies approval. Certainly in ancient Greece, and in fact, it's still done in fraternities and sororities today where you vote by either putting a white stone or a black stone into a box or a jar. Hence, the term being blackballed. The way most fraternities work is the decision to accept a new member must be unanimous. And the voting is by black balls or white balls put into a box or a jar. So the term being blackballed means somebody has put a black ball when he's voting about you into the jar, which means that you are rejected. And so the idea in Revelation of him giving you a white stone, which is the opposite of a black stone, which would be rejected, and then the fact that on that stone is a name that is written that is only known to him and to you, and what that says is that God is your father because your father is the one who gives you a name. So when he gives you a new name, that means he's acting as a father to you. He's naming you. It also means that since nobody else knows the name except you and he, nobody else has power or authority over you. All of that goes into that process. The idea here in Isaiah 65:15 is 
his servants, God's servants, he, God, will call by another name, which means that the name that they were born with on earth is going to be changed to a name that he will give you. And of course, the giving of the name, as I said, is a father's function. And the idea of a name that's only known to the two of you means that nobody except him has dominion over you. Verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The former troubles are caused by the ones who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. What happens to them? They die. Those of you who have been around here any length of time, no revelation in 25 words or less, right? You've got seven seals, which authenticates Yeshua as the king. You have seven trumpets, which announces the coming of the king. And then you have seven bowls of wrath, which is the king taking vengeance upon his enemies. So what's happened here is those who have set their table for fortune have been killed by God. Hence, we are talking revelation. So once you get down to verse 16 in Isaiah 65 here, those who have set the table for fortune and mixed cups of wine for destiny are now gone. So in 16, he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, as opposed to blessing himself by something else. And then he who takes an oath shall swear by God instead of by whatever they were swearing by before. And then because the former troubles are forgotten are hidden from my eyes. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. Now, as I read Revelation and the prophetic books, it appears to me like you have the thousand-year reign at the end of which everything is destroyed and you have a new heaven and a new earth. That's the sequence that appears to me in Revelation. The commentary I was reading says that Isaiah sort of mixes those two things. And you've got stuff from the new heaven and the new earth, and you've got stuff from the millennial reign. For example, the idea of Yeshua going through the nations and slaying his enemies and you got you know blood up to the withers of the horses and all that kind of stuff i think is a millennial reign event part of the thousand years and once we get to the new heaven and the new earth all that stuff is done here it feels like we got rid of all the idolaters and those who were worshiping fortune now everything is good in the land and that feels like thousand year reign stuff but now we are talking about a new heaven and a new earth. So the commentary I read says that it seems to be mixing those things as opposed to having them distinct as they appear later on in Scripture. So verse 17 again. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That feels like Jerusalem comes down from heaven, adorned as a bride, 
etc. I don't have any problem with any of that. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young men shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now this is where this commentary that I was talking about says that we seem to have wobbling back and forth. Because as I understand the new heaven and the new earth, death is the final enemy that is done away with. Yet here, what you have is long lives and long lives in peace and happiness, but you do have a terminus to life in the body. As I say, the commentary I was reading says, well, you sort of seem to have a mixture of new heaven and new earth stuff with a thousand-year reign stuff. And I'm not competent to disambiguate that. I'm just noting the mixture, if you will. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And the idea of the days of a tree, trees typically outlive people. So the idea is obviously long, uh, fruitful life, and this idea of planting and eating what you've planted and vineyards and drinking your own wine and so forth. And early on in most of the prophetic books, one of the curses is, if you go away from me, you'll plant grain, but somebody else will eat it. You'll betroth the wife, but somebody else will sleep with her. That kind of thing. So this is by way of saying all of that stuff that is in the prophetic books, which Isaiah is one, that are reserved for Israel when they stray from God's covenants, all of that stuff is done. Hence... It also feels to me like New Covenant territory. And of course, you all know the New Covenant shows up in Deuteronomy, it shows up in Jeremiah, it shows up in Ezekiel, it shows up in Hebrews, it shows up in Isaiah, it shows up all over the place. But the idea there is that at some point, God will affect the circumcision of your heart and these desires that you have to go off and do your own thing instead of doing what God wants you to do will be gone. So the idea that people live a long time, that they're not tempted to stray, that there won't be anybody coveting either their food, their land, or their spouses, all that seemed like New Covenant talk to me. 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. A couple of things there. Obviously, the image of wolf and lion grazing together. Most Christian commentators that I have seen are of the opinion that pre-flood, everything was vegetarian. Hence the wolf and the lamb and the idea that the wolf is grazing. I'm not sure I buy that simply because wolves and lions are designed to be predators. And one of the things about nature is if either predators or prey 
get out of balance, the other one very quickly puts them back into balance. For example, good old National Park Service screwed up Yellowstone big time. And they finally backed off, reintroduced wolves, which they had hunted to extinction in Yellowstone and so forth. And when they reintroduced wolves, all of a sudden, the growth around the streams and meadows changed. And the reason it changed is because now there were wolves and the elk and the deer were no longer able to just go anywhere and eat whatever they wanted. Now they all of a sudden had to be wary. And so it changed what they ate, it changed their behavior, and it changed the entire ecosystem of plants, even though wolves don't eat plants, except when they're sick and they eat grass like a dog. So I regard this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and so forth. I regard that rather than literally true as simply an image of peaceful existence, everything working the way God designed it to work. Everything's in balance. And if you're one of those who believes that at some point wolves are going to graze along, then fine, God bless you, I'm not hostile to any of that. It just seems to me that if you don't have wolves that are occasionally eating rabbits, pretty soon you're up to your withers and rabbits. It's just the way it works. So now we're all the way down to 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these came to be, declares the Lord. And by the way, that is a direct refutation, as we talked about earlier, this idea of evolution. Whereas time plus rocks equals life, which is absurd. And so what the prophet here is doing for God is saying that's entirely absurd. The other thing is the idea of you building a house for him. Uh, one of the things that happens when David wants to build the temple is God through the prophet, looks at him and says, you're going to build a place for me. First off, you're soaked with blood and you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. But even if so, uh, you, know, you can't build a place that would contain me. So verse 2 again. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So we contrast that with the ones who have set their table for fortune. What God is looking for is those who are humble, contrite, and recognize that he's God and they're not, which is a problem we have today. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. So now we're back to idolaters. And the idea here is at various times in Israel's history, they have been really, really good at following the form of temple worship. They offer the proper sacrifices, stuff. they offer you know, incense and all the stuff that they're supposed to do according to the letter of the Torah. But what has happened is their society has become soaked in violence. 
So at that point, God says, your public displays of devotion are worthless to me because the society you have created is full of violence and injustice. So what he's saying here is, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. In other words, slaughters an ox in the context of a temple sacrifice. So somebody who does that, as far as I'm concerned, is like somebody who kills a man. Not that there's a problem with slaughtering oxen. The problem is the society that is doing all this has become corrupt. Verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Think about this a minute. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. I will suggest, in fact, I won't even suggest it, I will tell you, that one of the things about people who are not walking with God is they walk in fear. The idea here that you are setting a table for fortune and pouring out a drink for destiny indicates that you are doing religious rituals and you are doing them in the context of paganism. And the reason that you do religious rituals in the context of paganism is out of fear. The idea about pagan gods is pagan gods are capricious. And so you could be walking along and step on some God's sacred bush and he'll blight your sheep and you've got no idea what it is that you've done. And the job of pagan priests is like mind detectors. And what they're supposed to do is go through nature, the world, and figure out where the minds are and develop rituals and stuff to appease these capricious gods. Anybody ever read Greek tragedy? Oedipus, for example poster child for Greek tragedy. It is prophesied that the son will kill his father and marry his mother. So what they do is, we're going to thwart that, and they send the kid away, and he goes off to another city, is adopted by somebody, and grows up completely separate from the royal family. Well, and one day he's walking along and meets this guy on the road, and they get into a fight, and he kills him. Turns out the guy's his father. And he goes to this town and sees this babe and falls in love with her. It turns out she's his mother. So the idea of fate or destiny, I mean, the, the whole world is a minefield. So God bringing their fears upon them, all of these rituals that they have devised to keep themselves safe in a world that's a minefield of stuff they can't see, God is saying, all right, all that stuff going to happen to you. And all of your rituals to avoid it are going to be worthless. Verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. So who is hated here? The ones that love the Lord. So the ones that love the Lord will be hated by their brethren, and will be cast out. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. Notice that they are mocking those who believe and they are mocking them with their belief. You guys believe in God. They throw them out and they say, well, all right, now let's see your joy. 
as we have destroyed your life. That's what's being said there. Verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And where is he rendering the recompense to his enemies? In the temple, because the temple has become polluted. The temple has become a den of thieves. Remember, we're talking about the idea of these people are being punctilious about their observation of the rituals as described in Torah, but their society has become corrupt. So when God cleans them out, he is going to start in the temple. Where does it say that judgment begins in the house of the Lord, right? That's what's being said there. Verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. And of course, this is often quoted about the birth of the modern state of Israel. Because remember, in World War II, you had a nation that was doing their very level best to wipe out the Jews and Israel. And then in 1948, three years after the end of the war, all of a sudden you have a Jewish state. So the idea of before she was in labor, she gave birth. In other words, nobody was expecting this to happen. Certainly you wouldn't have expected it in the depths of World War II. Let's back it up to eight now and we'll go through nine. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says our God. And the idea there is the birth of Israel is a God thing. Verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And I'm suggesting that we're talking about either the bride as it comes down from heaven, Jerusalem adorned like a bride, or we could be talking about modern Jerusalem, given that we just finished the recreation of the state of Israel. Verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse, you shall be carried on her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. One of the things that modern Israel has said, and I've forgotten who said it, is Israel has been blessed with stupid enemies. The Arabs who have been around them and virulently hostile have traditionally always struck before they were ready. Rather than getting everything set, somebody jumps the gun. And so their attacks have not gone off as well as would be expected from the preponderance of their military force. So the idea that God has established it and he shows his indignation against his enemies 
we're seeing that today. 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire shall the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Again, this sounds like somebody coming back on a white horse with the armies of heaven arrayed in white behind him. This sounds like blood up to the withers of the horses. This sounds like the seven bowls of wrath. To reiterate what I said earlier on in the evening, you have stuff from new heaven and new earth mixed in with stuff from the millennial reign and all this. And it's kind of hard sometimes to pick out which era we're talking about. 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. So the idea of sanctifying and purifying yourself to go into the garden is talking about pagan worship. Because obviously they're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're eating swine's flesh and the abomination, whatever that is, and they're also eating mice. None of which is kosher. The idea of sanctifying oneself to go into a garden goes back to Isaiah 65, where you have people going into a garden and sacrificing on bricks. And we talked about that at the time because a proper altar to God is made out of undressed stone. So using man-made stone, bricks, to do a sacrifice is directly contrary to what God has in mind. 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and from them these are survivors of the nations who have been gathered together. So from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So he's gathered all the nations to him, and he is sending out now survivors to spread the word about himself. Verse 20, And they shall bring all their brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots, and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So the idea there is he is going to anoint, if you will, some from the nations who are going to be priests and Levites. Now, what that may mean is Ephraim returning. Because Ephraim, who has been lost and scattered among the nations, would have had priests and Levites among them. And so these people who have come back may in fact be hereditary Levites. Or it may be that just like God the first time took the Levites, he's going to take somebody different. He's God and he gets to do that. 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. 
and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And of course, Yeshua quotes this passage in Mark 9.48. You've got a new heaven and a new earth, but you've also got the bodies of the slain. And to me, the bodies of the slain feels like thousand-year reign. New heaven and a new earth, I don't know that he is importing carcasses into the new heaven and the new earth. You have this mixing, if you will, of what I see as millennial reign and new heaven and new earth. As you get later into Revelation and so forth, those get separated out and it becomes, I think, more clear. To quote Mark Twain, I don't worry about the parts of the Bible I don't understand. The parts that I do understand scare me enough. Regardless of where the time frame is, either millennial reign or new heaven and new earth, the point is he is dealing with his enemies. And he has promised that once he is done dealing with his enemies and he's regathered Israel and the nations have made it past the lake of fire, then you'll have a new heaven and a new earth and Jerusalem and Israel will be what he had always designed them to be. And the question of where the new covenant shows up, personally, I think the new covenant is a new heaven and a new earth thing. If you think it's a millennial reign thing, God bless you, we can still do lunch. But it feels to me like new heaven and new earth as opposed to millennial reign. But reasonable people can differ on that, I think. The point is, he makes a definite separation between those who are humble, those who respect him, those who respect his word and do their best to follow it, and those who are off in gardens offering on bricks and doing all sorts of weird stuff, none of which he commanded. He he makes a real clear distinction between his people and everybody else. With that, the long march through Isaiah is finished. (laughs) 